The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you again this morning preaching the word. Clint is out this week, but he will be back with us next week. And uh, I'm really excited to, to teach this particular passage to you. Uh, I believe that the Lord's got some incredible truths that he wants to speak to us today. But I want to challenge you with something as we get started. Let that be your posture as we come before the text each and every week, that you would ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you want to speak to me? I promise you that he will be faithful to answer that question. So for the sake of time, I want to jump right in and I want to give you our big picture question that we're going to be asking ourselves, and it's this. Do you trust that the Lord will fight your battles? Do you trust that the Lord will fight your battles? I think that that is the question that the Lord is asking of us this morning, and we're going to hone in on that question in two ways. We're going to talk about timing, and we're going to also talk about taking things into our own hands. And the reason why we're going to look at those things in particular is because in the midst of our battles, we struggle with timing and control, right? We tend to ask God, how long is this going to take place? And if you get frustrated enough, you might even try to do things your own way. David here in chapter 26 of of 1 Samuel is a wonderful example of releasing those things to the Lord and trusting him. Also, if you were here about three weeks ago, uh, we spent some time talking about timing and control in chapter 23. Uh, I think today really could be a part two of that sermon, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. Not only that, you may have noticed that this particular scripture sounds a lot like another story that we have already studied, and if you did notice that, you are right. Chapter 26 is very similar to chapter 24. Here we have a second time that David is in the presence of his enemy and chooses not to kill him. Interestingly enough, a lot of scholars have thought that maybe these two chapters are talking about the same incident. But I'd like to propose to you that I think that they are two different stories put in here for very specific reasons. You see, we believe that the scriptures are true and right and that they're perfect in their composition. And I think that there's something that the Lord wants us to see here in chapter 26. It's not just the same story told over again, but David has grown over the last couple of chapters and in turn is going to show us how we should grow. So let me give you a bit of an overview of what's going on here in this story, and I'm going to somewhat paraphrase it for you. Here we have Saul and his 3,000 men camped out in the wilderness. And David hears that they're nearby, and he recruits his nephew, Abishai, to go down with him in the middle of the night to their camp. And he doesn't say much about what they're going to do. He just recruits someone. And Abishai's nephew raises his hand and says, hey, I will go. So they go down to this camp, and this is where the story really gets interesting, because it's like a scene out of a movie, I think. David and Abishai are tiptoeing around this camp. Keep in mind, 3,000 men, and everyone is sleeping. 
And the text says that they eventually come to Saul laying there sleeping and he has a water jug laying next to him and he also has his spear stuck in the ground next to his head. So Abishai, he speaks up and he says, okay, here we are, David, this is it. Now is the time. The Lord has delivered your enemy into your hand. And he's so excited. He actually says to David, he says, listen, please let me take his spear and drive it into his head while he's sleeping. So pause just for a second. This is important because I believe I I can picture in this moment as Abishai is saying this, I can almost see David freezing for just a second and this movie reel begins to play in his head, remembering all of the times that he's been running for his life from Saul. And you may remember from a few weeks ago, we actually spent some time talking about how we really need to focus in on David's reality. That David is a real, was a real person dealing with real issues. You need to keep in mind that this is the same David that has been running for his life for a while. Not just from Saul, but from other people in the land as well. This is also the same David that has cried out on many different occasions, saying things like, Lord, where are you? How long is this suffering going to continue? How long will you let my enemies triumph over me? Not only that, we now have David for the second time in this place where he has the ability to take out his enemy. Remember in chapter 24, he was in the cave with Saul. And he chooses to cut off a piece of his robe. And yet even then, he still walks away. I can imagine David in this daze as this movie reel is playing over and over again. He's frozen there and all of a sudden he snaps out of it and he shakes it off and he says, no, no, this is not for me to do Abishai. He actually goes on to say, who am I that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed? And then you can just picture Abishai saying, are you serious right now? If we're not going to kill Saul, then what are we even doing here? Why did we come down here in the middle of the night? That's what I would have said. But David quickly says, no, let's go. Oh, by the way, grab his water jug and grab his spear and let's get out of here. And what's interesting about this particular story is it's, a, it's an unusual scene. We've got these two men tiptoeing around this camp, 3,000 men, and there's this really subtle verse right at the end of this scene that says, the Lord calls the deep sleep to come over everyone in the camp. And I think it just reinforces the fact that the Lord was taking care of his anointed David. But then the text seems to shift and we go to a new scene. And David and Abishai, they don't immediately go back to their camp. They actually go over to another hill where they can look down on Saul and his army and they call down to him. They actually call down to him and Abner, the commander of his army, who's sleeping right next to him. And Saul and Abner begin to wake up. Abner first starts talking to David. He can't see him, but he can hear this voice. And then Saul wakes up and hears the voice and says, oh, is that you, David? And David says, yes. And really, there's no other way to put this. After that, David just lays into him. He first goes into Abner and he says, some commander you are. Aren't you supposed to be protecting your king? Look what I have right here. His water jug and his spear. The two things that represent life 
and authority. What are you doing, Abner? And then he moves on to Saul. He says, what's gotten into you? He says, you are the king of Israel and you are spending all of your time chasing after me, an innocent man. It makes sense why the Lord would take the throne away from you. And after David is done with his rant, Saul speaks up and for just a short moment, you see a glimpse of remorse from Saul. And he says, you're right. He says, I've been foolish. I've made a mistake. He says, my life was precious to you. So shall your life be precious in the sight of the Lord. He goes on to say, be blessed, David. He says, you will go on to do many things and you will succeed. And with that, the chapter ends. David goes his way and Saul goes the other. And this is actually the last time that David and Saul see one another. From here, David does still continue to flee for a little bit longer because even though Saul says, hey, you know what? I made a mistake. I'm done. He still doesn't believe him. And there's only a few more chapters left in this particular story where Saul continues to do his own thing. And this book eventually ends with Saul taking his own life in chapter 31. It's an interesting story, right? let's talk for just a minute about how timing fits into this and how I believe the Lord wants to challenge our thinking on timing with this text. You see, we mentioned a few weeks ago that dealing with timing is a hard thing for all of us, right? Believer or non-believer, it doesn't matter who you are. As human beings, we think that we know best. We think we know when something should happen and how something should happen. And if it doesn't, it can be hard for us. Rightfully so. I'm not saying that this is easy by any means, but what I am wanting to remind us of this morning is the fact that in the life of the believer, we are able to walk with a freedom that knowing God's timing is perfect. Life is hard and struggles may come and we have prayed many of the same prayers that David has prayed, like how long, Lord, and why and when. Maybe praying more specific prayers like, Lord, how long are you going to let this illness continue? When are you going to bring healing? When will you restore that relationship? Or when will trial, when will this trial go away? You see, in chapter 26, David finds himself standing over his enemy for the second time. And I have to imagine that in that moment, he wants nothing more than to take care of this himself. To get his life back, to end the suffering, and rightfully so, wouldn't you? But he doesn't kill him. Why? Well, I think the answer lies in the growth that we see in him over the last couple of chapters. I'd like to propose that David has found a freedom in the Lord that allowed him to say, no, the Lord is faithful, and even though I want this, I trust that the Lord will deal with Saul in his timing. A couple of weeks ago, I said it like this. It's living in the reality of Ecclesiastes 3.11 that says, 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But let me come at it from a different angle for just a second. The famous pastor and teacher Oswald Chambers has a quote, and it's this. Sometimes God's aim appears to have missed the mark. But it's because we are too nearsighted to see the target. Because we are too nearsighted to see the target. What I think this quote is trying to help us to realize is that as believers, when we are in the midst of a battle, when we are suffering, that's usually all that we can see. It's hard for us to step back enough to ask the question, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And I get it. In that moment, in that season, in that particular situation of struggle, you want nothing more than to get out of it, for it to be done. But I think this quote is also a reminder to us that there's no such thing as God missing the target with anything. I think David was living in the reality of this quote. That in that moment, I think David was able to step back and say, yes, I want Saul to die now more than anything else. But God's plans and purposes are bigger. And yes, I can't see the future right now, but I can trust in a faithful God. So let me ask you this. What areas of your life do you need to trust him for? Even though you can't see the when or the how. What areas of your life do you need to trust him for, even though you can't see the when or the how? Do you know how Paul describes our suffering as believers in the New Testament? And if you haven't noticed by now, I'm using suffering and battles in interchangeably. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For this light momentary affliction. That includes all suffering. Pain. Illness, death, division, conflict, disaster. But hear me say this. This verse is not meant to take the pain away. It's meant to help us to understand the realities of living an eternal life with Christ. It's meant to give us peace in God's timing. It's meant to strengthen us to say this pain is unbearable right now, but God's plans are bigger than mine. And in the end, there is an eternal glory beyond all comparison. You see, we as believers are meant to look at suffering on this side of heaven and have hope. Why? Because our life doesn't consist of the here and now, but this life on earth is just the beginning. I think David understood this and was walking in this freedom. 
I think this passage is a call for us to walk in the same freedom that even in the midst of suffering, we can trust that God has made everything beautiful in his time. But it's also important for us to spend a few minutes thinking about this idea of how we so easily can take things into our own hands while the Lord all the while was saying it was never yours to pick up. All the while he's saying, let go and let me take this from you. Let me fight this battle for you. Just trust me. David understood this well, at least here in this particular situation. He's standing over his enemy. His nephew is right there egging him on, and he had every right to do it, but he knew the Lord was saying no. Let me tell you a quick story. You see, before moving to Florida, Liz and I, we lived in North Carolina, And at one point in time, we found ourselves in a season where we were moving out of one house and needed to find another one. And there's a few important details about this story that you need to know. The first one is this. We lived in a really small vacation town where there was only a thousand year-round residents that lived there. There was hardly any long-term rental properties There was only one apartment complex in the entire town, and it was full. And just to top it all off, Liz was about seven and a half months pregnant with Daisy at the time. And this is no exaggeration. I'm not just saying this. We spent weeks and months looking everywhere we could to try to find a place, and nothing was coming up. And another important detail about this story is that if we could not find a place to go, we had to be out of one house. If we couldn't find our next one, our only other alternative was to move back to Georgia for a short season to have the baby there. And then we'd just eventually come back to hopefully find something. Which, as you know well, no woman wants to be moving anywhere when she's pregnant, much less across state lines to a new doctor and all that kind of stuff. But hear me say this, we looked everywhere until one day we got a call from the apartment complex and we had previously put our names on a waiting list just in case something ever came available and so that day I went into the office just to get the ball moving and hear me say this Liz and I were just so excited we were like this is the Lord he has come through this is wonderful and so we keep on rolling and I go into the office and I start to fill out all the paperwork and I quickly realized two things. The first one was these particular apartments were um, tax credit apartments, which I really wasn't aware of that at the time, which meant you had to make a certain amount to live there. And because of some assets we had and because of our income, I made too much. Now, keep in mind, I was a Bible teacher at the time. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, are you kidding me, Lord? Like, when have I ever had a situation where I made too much to live, you know, live somewhere? Um, But not only that, I realized as I was doing this paperwork that the woman that was there managing these apartments, she began to say things like this. She began to say like, okay, well, maybe you just don't need to fill this portion out or you can fill it out like this. Or maybe you could just put a different amount here for 
this. And what I realized pretty quickly is she was wanting me to lie on this application. And I get it. She was super nice. She knew our situation. She knew Liz was pregnant. She was just trying to help. But I stopped and immediately was like, okay, just let me go home for just a few minutes. Let me talk to my wife about this and I'll come back. So you have to understand on the drive home, I'm sitting here thinking to myself like, okay, I've got a wife that's seven and a half months pregnant. We are about to have nowhere to go. Um, it's my job to care for my family well. Maybe I can just word it this way where it maybe doesn't sound as much like a lie or what. I, I don't know. I was thinking, I'm like, maybe I could do this. All the while knowing that what the Lord was saying in the back of my mind. So I go home and I tell Liz about this. And as you all know well, the Lord has graced me with a, a wonderful God-fearing woman that immediately said, well, that stinks, but we can't do it. We're just going to have to trust that the Lord will provide. So we both agreed and I went back and I told the woman, thanks, but no thanks. What you have to understand was we realized in that moment when we were saying no to the apartments, it meant we were probably saying yes to moving back to Atlanta. This was it. This was our last shot. There was nothing else. And so that same day, as stories like this typically go, Liz felt like the Lord said, hey, why don't you call that guy that's got the greenhouse? little backstory. There was a guy that had a house. He was renting and we called him to see if it was available. And it wasn't. And we did this, you know, three or four months earlier. But she felt like the Lord said, just call that guy back and ask him. And so she called him and she said, hey, I'm just calling to see, you know, you still got someone in your house. And he said, you know, you'll never believe this, but my tenant just called me this morning and told me that they had to move out. I'm looking for a new, I'm looking for some new renters. Now, if you want to come over at three this afternoon, you can see it. I want to say three weeks later or so, we moved into this house. And then, I don't know, don't quote me on the numbers, but five weeks later, we had Daisy. Now, I could tell you a hundred other stories as you, a lot of you know me well, where I completely missed the mark and tried to do something on my own did not listen to the Lord, and it did not go well. It just so happens that I am very thankful that in this particular tense moment that we did not take things in our own hands and that the Lord allowed us to trust him. So let me ask you again, do you trust that the Lord will fight your battles? Hear me say this, we believe in a sovereign God. He is before all and in all and through all and he goes before us. And I say that because we are not meant to walk around with this pressure of feeling like we have to have it all together and get it exactly right every single time. And if we make one wrong move, we've ruined our lives. No, we serve a gracious God that cares for his people and that's not how life with Christ works. The scriptures tell us to seek his spirit and he will guide us. And yeah, sometimes our flesh does get in the way and we try to do things our own way and we miss the mark. 
But the scriptures tell us that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And yes, that means sometimes he will use our bad decisions for the good of our souls. But I think this text is calling us to be mindful of the areas of, of our life that we hold on to so tightly and don't want to let go of. You see, I think David was set apart. And he saw the faithfulness of the Lord. In contrast, on many different occasions in this book, we see Saul who tried to do things on his own and it didn't turn out so well. What areas of your life do you need to let go of? What areas of your life have you held on too tightly and want to control? What areas of your life are you not trusting the Lord for his timing? In this particular moment, David knew this well. Sure, there were other times that David missed the mark and did things his own way. Just read 2 Samuel and you'll see a number of those examples. But here, in his heart, he knew that the Lord would fight his battles. This is so important to understand. He knew that even if things didn't make sense, even if it wasn't what he wanted, or even if it wasn't when he wanted it, he knew that the Lord would do it. Even if it wasn't what he wanted, or when he wanted it, he knew that the Lord would do it. So I want to read for us a, a passage that I think would be a, a wonderful prayer for us to meditate on this week. It comes from Psalms 25 four and five and it says this and I just love how how simple and direct this verse is it says show me your ways Lord teach me your paths guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my savior and my hope is in you all day long let that be your prayer this week each and every day you wake up and say Lord I find my hope in you Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful. And you love your children. You guide us each and every day. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a people that hold on to the hope that we have in you. That we could exemplify that to the world around us. That no matter what happens, we won't be shaken because you are perfect in your timing. You're perfect in your ways. Lord, help us to live in that reality today. In Jesus' name.